We're in our series on the book of Acts. We're looking at today chapter 25. And this uh, particular chapter is really about Paul's, just Paul, the Apostle Paul being on trial. Uh, So we're going to take a look at this. The title of this message is called The Call to Contend. And the title was inspired by a couple verses in the small book of Jude in the New Testament where he writes this, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a definition of the word contend that I found in in the dictionary. It's to struggle in opposition. For example, to contend with the enemy for control of a port or to strive in rivalry, vie, to contend for first prize. One answer to what the word contend means in the Bible was this. I thought this was good. The word contend means to agonize. It is the spirit of true agony which possesses one who is contending. Agony of spirit and love for the gospel should be in the heart of every believer. Contending means to fight while standing on the very thing being assaulted. It means to stand against all who undermine it. So Jude is saying, in essence, that certain people have cleverly and deceptively bewitched people into a perverted way of thinking about the Christian faith. So he exhorts God's people to fight them, not by physical force. Many Christians have gotten confused uh, through the years, through the centuries about that, but to confront their false ideas with the truth. And he pleads with them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the faith he's talking about is not just any faith, but it's, it's the faith in Jesus, the only true faith, the faith that will never change. The call to contend for what we know to be true, to stand in the arena of public opinions and not, listen, not merely bring another opinion, but to bring the authoritative message of Jesus. To kind of stand in the marketplace and not merely say, I think, or I believe, but to say, I know. And this is the language of the Bible, right? I know. To contend implies arguing persuasively. And Paul did this. 
using force of reason to speak with clarity and boldness. Whenever God's people speak through the Holy Spirit in this way, it causes society to either break down under the conviction or to attack the church. Just when we were worshiping, I was, or no, I think it was during the, I don't know when it was. It might have been watching the, the short film, but I was thinking about, or maybe I was praying during the worship time. And I was thinking about how uh, Jesus taught that what the Holy Spirit does is he convinces people of sin and righteousness and judgment. This is what the Holy Spirit's role is. So when we preach about sin and righteousness and the judgment to come, it's that message that the Holy Spirit infuses and makes real to the heart. If we preach our own thing, our own version of Christianity, the Holy Spirit just backs off. He can't bless that. He's not going to move through that. That's why it's so important that we get the message right. So yeah, I think this is kind of what happens when the preaching of the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit happens. It causes people to react to respond. It's really hard to remain neutral in the preaching of the word. Either people beg God for mercy or they join the company of people through the ages who hated Christ. But nobody kind of just has a neutral response to it. One of the great problems in this generation is that the church at large has lost her voice at least here in America. They've watered down the message of Jesus so much that it barely has any effect at all. We compromise, this is the the logic behind it, we compromise the message. The message just seems too, it's too intense, it's too counterculture, it's too, it's gonna really insult people, it's gonna really offend people, so we we gotta change it, we gotta improve on this thing. So we, we, we kind of remake the message of Jesus, call it the message, message of Jesus, and kind of get it out there. And in the, the effort there, I think the motive, I guess, is to, to get more people to join us, right? And it kind of works because people are like, oh, okay, that's not too bad. That doesn't sound like, that's not too fire and brimstone. That's not too sin righteousness and judgment. This seems like a little bit more like uh, your best life now. You know, it seems like a little bit like the things I want. I want money. I want health. I want, I want good things to happen to me. This seems like something that I could, I, could, I could get into. And so they join. But you know what? In the end, it's wood, hay, and stubble. And that's my introduction. I'm realizing that it's very intense. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is an intense word, and I'm feeling the intensity, so I'm just kind of warning you because I, I'm not being dramatic or sensational, but every great once in a while, I feel viciously attacked by spiritual forces. 
And that is what happened last night. I, I, I could not. I was so tired. I could barely wait for my wife to get home from her wedding. And then when I finally did go to bed at midnight, I, couldn't, I could not sleep. And I was up till probably four in the morning just dealing with it, just praying, fighting the flurry of just craziness, you know, trying to, to, to knock me off balance. So it's been a fight to kind of get to this point. So thank you for listening. And if I seem intense, it's because I feel like I've been in some spiritual warfare in the last 10 hours. So what I want to do is read um, all of chapter 25. It's a little, it's a little bland in the ESV, so I'm going to actually um, shift over to the message version, which is a paraphrase, but I think it'll just be a little bit, just to help, especially if you're not familiar with it and you've never read it before, I think it'll just kind of give a little more sense to what, what's happening in this chapter. All right, so this is Acts chapter 20, 25, the message version. Three days after Festus, Festus was the new governor after Felix. Felix was governor for two years. Paul was in prison for two years. That's what we talked about last time. But three days after Festus, this new governor, arrived in Caesarea to take up his duties as governor, he went up to Jerusalem. The high priests and top leaders renewed their vendetta against Paul. They asked Festus if he wouldn't please do them a favor by sending Paul to Jerusalem to respond to their charges. A lie, of course. They had received their old plot to set an ambush to kill Paul along the way. Festus answered that Caesarea was the proper jurisdiction for Paul and that he himself was going back there in a few days. You're perfectly welcome, he said, to go back with me then and accuse him of whatever you think he's done wrong. So about eight or 10 days later, Festus returned to Caesarea. The next morning, he took his place in the courtroom and had Paul, the apostle Paul, brought in. And the minute he walked in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem were all over him, hurling the most extreme accusations, none of which they could prove. Then Paul took the stand and said simply, I've done nothing wrong against the Jewish religion or the temple or Caesar, period. Festus, though, wanted to get on the good side of the Jews and so said, how would you like to go up to Jerusalem and let me conduct your trial there? Paul answered, I'm standing at this moment before Caesar's bar. Paul was a Roman, Roman citizen. Um, he was also a Jew, but he was a Roman citizen. I'm standing at this moment before Caesar's bar of justice where I have a perfect right as a, Jew, as a Roman citizen to stand. And I'm going to keep standing here. I've done nothing wrong to the Jews and you know it as well as I do. If I've committed a crime and deserve death, name the day. I can face it. But if there's nothing to the accusations and you know there isn't, nobody can force me to go along with their nonsense. You've fooled around here long enough. I appeal to Caesar. Festus huddled with his advisors briefly and then gave his verdict. You've appealed to Caesar, then you'll go to Caesar. A few days later, King Agrippa and his, uh, well, this is Eugene Peterson giving his slant here, his wife, Bernice, some say it was actually his sister, I don't think it's really, we don't know for certain, but 
this woman named Bernice accompanied King Agrippa. And by the way, Agrippa, this is the family of the, kind of the Herods. I mean, you go back to the birth of Jesus. Remember King Herod who basically slaughtered all of the babies at that time to try to kill Jesus because he was threatened by this one who would become king. Some of the others in uh, Agrippa's family beheaded John the Baptist, uh, killed James with the sword. I mean, this is a pretty scary family we're talking about. King Agrippa and his wife or sister, Bernice, visited Caesarea basically to welcome Festus to his new post. After several days, Festus brought up Paul's case to the king. And he explains that I have a man on my hands here, a prisoner left by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the high priests and Jewish leaders brought a bunch of accusations against him and wanted me to sentence him to death. I told him that that wasn't the way we Romans did things. Just because a man is accused, we don't throw him out to the dogs. We make sure the accused has a chance to face his accusers and defend himself of the charges. So when they came down here, I got right on the case. I took my place in the courtroom and put the man on the stand. The accusers came in. These were the Jewish leaders from all sides. But their accusations turned out to be nothing more than arguments about their religion and a dead man named Jesus who the prisoner claimed was alive. Since I'm a newcomer here and don't understand everything involved in cases like this, I asked if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem and and be tried there. Paul refused and demanded a hearing before his majesty in our highest court. So I ordered him return to custody until I could send him to Caesar in Rome. Agrippa, he's kind of curious at this point. He says, I'd like to see this this guy and hear his story. Can you see the orchestration of the Lord here? (laughs) Good, said Festus. We'll bring him in first thing in the morning and you'll hear it for yourself. So the next day, everybody who was anybody in Caesarea found his way to the great hall Along with the top military brass, Agrippa and Bernice made a flourishing grand entrance and took their places. Festus then ordered Paul. The history books tell us Paul was this little guy. I don't know if he was five feet tall, five two or something like that, little bald guy. Um, one writer said he, his legs were a little, I don't know if they were bowed or something. He was just not a powerful physical presence. So little Paul is ordered to come into this great scene. Festus said, King Agrippa and distinguished guests, take a good look at this man. A bunch of Jews petitioned me first in Jerusalem and later here to do away with him. They have been most vehement in demanding his execution. I looked into it and decided that he had committed no crime. He requested a trial before Caesar So I agreed to send him to Rome. But what I am going to write to my master, what am I going to write to my master, Caesar? All the charges made by the Jews were fabrications. I've uncovered nothing else. Really, they should have just let him go. There's no reason to hold him. That's why I've brought him before this company, and especially you, King Agrippa, 
so we can come up with something in the nature of a charge, like evidence, that will hold water. For it seems to me silly to send a prisoner all that way for a trial and not be able to document what he did wrong. Well, that's the story of Acts chapter 25. And if you're wondering who Paul is, some of you might be very new to the gospel or to Christianity. Um, Paul was basically the most famous Christian in the first century. He wrote most of the New Testament Bible. He was at first a Jewish rabbi who fiercely persecuted Christians, but then had a dramatic encounter with God and converted deeply to the Christian faith. Um, But Paul didn't just become a, a good Christian. He became the greatest leader in the church of his day. He was a missionary who spread the message of the gospel far and wide. And listen, he was greatly loved by many people. And he was greatly hated. They wanted him dead. So the context here is that there are masses of people who are trying to silence and kill Paul. He's dangerous. They're opponents, Jewish leaders really, opponents of the Christian faith, as there are in every generation. It's interesting to me that this attack on the faith is played out so publicly. We know that the Lord is sovereign. He is orchestrating this very dramatic public trial involving the most prominent Jewish leaders and the highest Roman officials, at least in that region. There's nothing random about the things that happen in the lives of God's people. This was all part of God's plan to make known the message of the gospel. And it's similar to to some of the high-profile court cases that we can think of that have happened uh, sort of in our, in our lifetimes, right? Like the O.J. Simpson trial or the recent Johnny Depp Amber Heard, very dramatic trial, Roe versus Wade, Derek Chauvin, uh, Harvey Weinstein, Michael Jackson, Martha Stewart, Ted Bundy, David Berkowitz, These things are, these just capture the attention of the masses, right? But the public interest isn't merely an attraction to the sensational. Often there are kind of ideas on trial, right? What will the courts decide about the mistreatment of women? Or about racism or police brutality? Abortion? Corruption in government. It's a public examination of what it means to be human. And famous trials have a way of causing entire societies to think deeply about important matters, right? So the Lord orchestrates having Paul on trial to force the entire Jewish population and much of Rome to intelligently consider the life and the message of the Apostle Paul. There are some parallels to this today, all right? I'm going to try to connect this. I know this is a lot of content. But there are certain antagonists 
in our society who are working very hard to discredit the Christian faith. Politicians, maybe professors, authors, celebrities, influencers, powerful men and women. They're making their case to society that Christianity is not only irrelevant, but it's a threat to human progress. It's toxic. It has been the cause of many wars and domestic conflicts. It's behind political confusion, anxiety, depression, guilt, and even behind many suicides. This is the case that's being made. They are making the case that Christianity is oppressive by nature toward the LGBTQ community. They essentially put Christ on trial publicly and make themselves the accusers. Now, just side note here. Some of their accusations are valid because they're, they're using very broad strokes, right? If we apply some of their accusations and criticisms to legalistic forms of Christianity devoid of the Spirit, we can kind of say amen to some of those criticisms. I don't disagree with them. However, when they slander the entire global church or the church of 2,000 years or the message of Jesus, the message of the word of God, then we have some controversy. Now, what, back to Paul's trial here. What is interesting in the great public trial in the book of Acts is that Paul defends himself with such excellence that his accusers are, they're persuaded. They're silenced. And Rome actually becomes compelled by Paul's message. It's important to realize that Rome in the first century was essentially a pagan empire full of idols. I mean, they, there may have been a sprinkling of Romans who were Jewish, here and there, but it was, that was rare. So this trial was, in many ways, some of the first seeds of gospel influence on Rome that eventually, of course, became a hub for the Christian faith. But my point is that when Christianity came under fire in the first century, listen, Paul did not sit back passively and let it happen. And this is something I, I just think we get confused about. Maybe because of bad examples and toxic communicators or whatever. But we know it's not good to argue with people in ways that aren't productive, right? We've seen how cantankerous and just annoying some Christians, so-called Christians, can be in just attacking other people. Like that's, we see that that's not helpful, right? And scriptures don't teach us to be like that. Scriptures teach us to be gentle and respectful toward everyone, to honor everyone. Um, so some are attacking unbelievers without honor and that's messed up, right? But we kind of swing that pendulum so far the other way that we become, we become silenced, because we don't want to, we don't want to fight with anybody. We want to get along with everyone. 
powerful individuals rise up with demeaning words about Jesus and the faith that's been soaked in the blood of martyrs for 2,000 years. And because we want to be, uh, whatever, our idea of peacemakers, we say nothing. But Paul didn't let accusers get away with false accusations. Paul defended the faith. He defended his own life. He told his story. He argued persuasively. He exposed liars and their lies and testified powerfully to the truth of the gospel in a way that often silenced the foolish ideas of critics. See, the accusers in our society will try to make us think that we don't have reason on our side. Oh, yes, we do. Absolutely, we do. I mean, you saw the video. I mean, David talking about, look at creation. <laughs> look at just the intricacy of all that God has made. These things declare the glory of God. We have reason on our side. We have their conscience that God has put inside of them on our side. We have truth that we are, as human beings, we are designed to resonate with truth. We know truth when we hear it. Even if it's difficult to hear, we know it because that's how God made us. I mean, Romans, Romans chapter one, I mean, he's made it clear to us. He's given us the evidence. So I want to call us as a church to not just sit back and allow society, whoever they may be, whether it's, I don't know, family members or our cousins or our friends or our coworker, whoever they are, but that we wouldn't sit back and just allow people to discredit the person of Jesus. I mean, how many have been in those situations where you're with somebody and, you know, and somebody brings up somebody who's a friend to you, somebody you really care about? somebody you really love and, and think highly of and you know really well, and they start bad-mouthing that person and, and kind of undermining that person, what do you do? I mean, hopefully you don't just be like, yeah, no, that's true. No, we're like, what are you talking, what are you, what? Like we stand up for our friend in that situation. I mean, that's what friendship is, right? So are we not the friends of God? Are we not the friends of Jesus? Let's stand up for truth in this generation. And let's not underplay how costly this can be, okay? There's a reason why we sometimes, or oftentimes, sit back when Christianity is attacked and say nothing, right? And I'm not just talking about like out there in the big arena, but whatever, around the family table, Thanksgiving, you just around, whatever, coworkers, in the break room, at work, in different, wherever you are, in the classroom, if you're a college student, there's a reason why we say nothing. It's because we are now the minority in this society. And if we speak up and challenge those who attack the Christian faith, well, we're going to be, we could be shunned. We could be canceled. We could be shamed. We could be uh, categorized as one of those people, you know, labeled 
despised and hated. Come on, no human wants to be despised and rejected, right? No human enjoys being, I don't think, publicly disdained. And so it's easier to just keep our thoughts to ourselves. Keep the peace. Stay in good favor with the public. But listen, I just, if I could say this loud, this is not our calling. Our calling is not to keep the peace and harmony with everyone around us. Jesus said, I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword, division. I'm actually going to divide mother from daughter, father from son. The gospel is going to divide families and societies and schools and companies, every kind of community or organization. The gospel splits it up. So if you have this idea that the gospel just brings blessing on everyone and just makes the world be more beautiful and makes everything work better, you, I don't know what gospel you're talking about. It's not the one in the Bible. And it's not the one that's played out for 2,000 years either. That is not our calm. The whole idea of carrying your cross, right, that Jesus talked about is really, it's not, you know, sometimes we use that phrase, oh, I'm really carrying my cross. Like I have a, you know, I wore some new shoes and now I have a blister on my ankle. It's like a real cross. To, like I got to walk. I got to feel this pain. Like we just use that term in ridiculous ways to talk about the little afflictions we have to deal with in life. But that's not what Jesus was talking about at all. To carry the cross means to bear the reproach of identifying fully with the person and message of Jesus. Can I get an amen there? Amen. That's what it means to carry your cross. Jesus said in Luke 6.26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Whoa. How about Luke 6. 22 and 23, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, Jesus. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so, listen to this, for so their fathers did to the prophets. We are called to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in our generation. To defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Paul said in Corinthians, knowing the terror of the Lord. He was viewing the judgment of God. The eternal uh, moment when all people, great and small, will stand before the living God and there will be weeping and gnashing of the teeth. And many, many will be lost in that time. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we're about it. I mean, that's my paraphrase. We're persuading people. Not passively, but we are passionately persuading people. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we are called to persuade men, to go into all the world and preach this message, and there is a cost to it. Jesus said, if they hated me, they are going to hate you. I mean, 
we should feel like something is wrong. If they hated Jesus and hated the first century Christians to the point that they were thrown into arenas and killed and lit on fire and imprisoned and beheaded, and that there's the blood of the martyrs for 2,000 years, that they, there's always been a hatred for true followers of Jesus for 2,000 years. Well, we should, we should probably think maybe something's wrong if I'm in perfect harmony with everyone in my life. If you're in perfect harmony, it's because you're silent. Because you're not speaking the truth. You say, well, I'm not a preacher. I'm not, you know, I'm just uh, whatever. I'm just do, you know, I work with computer. I'm a school teacher. I'm this, you know, I can't speak in the school because I'm in a public school. All the different things. I get all that. And yes, some of us are called to be preachers or writers. And so we're going to be a little bit more out there with our message. But listen, we are all called to be ambassadors of Jesus, to be representing Christ on this earth and his message. We are, I mean, being a messenger is synonymous with being a Christian. That, I should just say that and walk off. That's a mic drop. There's no, it's like, well, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I'm not really going to say anything to anybody. I'm not really, I don't feel comfortable with that. I'm not like, let other people, Pastor Scott, he's like, loves words and just let him do it. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm just going to be quiet. I'm just going to mind my own business and just, you know, do my little job or whatever. And I'm going to let other people do that. It's not my calling. And I'm not saying you have to be a preacher. We're not talking about that. But we are called when we follow Jesus to be messengers. How about the call to the disciples? Drop your nets, come and follow me, and I will make you into fishers of men. I mean, what does that mean? Come, follow me, and I am going to train you and equip you to display and proclaim this message that can change people's lives. Right? How did, how did that change? When did that change? Like, we got to look at the word. Let's be careful we aren't trying to make Christianity cool, acceptable, palatable. Now, I think, you know, some people, we can kind of go the other way and try to intentionally make it as uncool and lacking excellence or make it just you know, annoying or something. Like, no, I'm, there's a balance there, but we got to be really careful. We aren't trying to dress this thing up to make it a little bit more attractive for people. If we are going to turn the tide in our nation and see a widespread revival, it won't be just because we are hidden under our little bowls praying a lot. Prayer is absolutely one of the keys to revival. I mean, you've heard me preach on that many times. But prayer, real prayer, leads to baptisms of the Holy Spirit, right? And baptisms of the Holy Spirit ah, put you in a place where you can't be silent. You have to speak. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to speak 
speak the things that the Spirit wants you to speak. I mean, this is like the pattern, right? In the, in the book of Acts, like they, they would come together, they would, they would, they would you know, gather together and persecution's happening, all this stuff, right? And what, they would cry out to God, you know, grant us boldness, come Lord, help us, you know, basically was the, the prayer. Like, God, we need you. And, and what would God do? God would pour out the Holy Spirit and they would all be filled with the Holy Spirit and then go out and preach the word boldly everywhere. Well, when did that change? I mean, this, these are what the Christians did in the first century. It wasn't, just, it wasn't just Peter and Paul and Stephen and a couple of the deacons. The Bible says that the, the, the body, those who were everyone gathered, was filled and they all went out and shared. Now, now, they didn't all go out and do open-air preaching. Maybe certain ones did that. That was a thing back there uh, in the first century. You know, that was like a way to communicate back then. It was very acceptable. Not everybody did that or had the gifting to do that. But they all went out and used whatever means they could to spread the message. You know, just looking around the room here right now and through the years, I mean, we've been doing Wren Church for 20 years. I am just shocked almost uh, at how, man, how, how many highly educated people have been a part of this community in the last 20 years. People with world-class education, people with... People with intellectual abilities way beyond what I have that you can touch arenas that I can't even come close to touching. This is my case right now for everyone in this room. My challenge to you is to use what God has given to you for the advance of the gospel. Not merely to make a career for yourself. Do you think that's why God gave you incredible intellectual abilities or skills or talents? Just so you can make a lot of money and have a big house and do whatever? Like, sure, yeah, we're called to do certain things, vocations or whatever, but it's, it's more than that. God has given you intellectual abilities for a reason, for the advancement of his name. So my message today is don't be silent. Speak the truth. Push back. Shut the mouths of slanderous fools who attempt to discredit the faith. Use the full force of the intellect and gifting that God has given to you. Boldly proclaim the truth. More practically, what does it look like? It means speaking up when you're at a table of friends and they start slandering Jesus. It means maybe speaking up in a classroom when the teacher just goes on a rant against Christianity. Always with gentleness and respect, but maybe it means putting a comment, offering a comment on social media when somebody we know attacks the faith. Writing to the editor of a magazine or newspaper to respond to an article that they put out 
that was discrediting the faith and intellectually dishonest. It means speaking the truth at weddings and funerals and other opportunities that we have to speak, public ceremonies. It means putting content out to the world that challenges the critics of the gospel. Because this is how to change the public opinion. We're live, This is a tough... I want to move to Knoxville. It's the most Bible-minded city in America. You know? And just plant a church there and see what happens. <laughs> It'd be great. It'd be like 5,000 people probably. This is a tough ground. We're in a tough area. This is a very um, cynical, very jaded part of, especially Providence, I mean, not just New England, but we're in Providence, many of us. And so it's not easy to share the, the gospel here. But how have we seen through history? I mean, think of MLK or think of even the recent like Me Too movement. You know, what happens when somebody speaks something out? When, when society is thinking very wrong about something, right? And then somebody kind of gets some courage and speaks about it. What, like people are like, whatever, right? Whatever. I'm not listening to that, you know? And so they just put it off. But then they come back and get, say the same thing. And then they come back again and say the same thing. And then somebody else joins them in saying the same thing. And then a whole handful of people. And then, you know, all of a sudden, like, every female in America is like, saying something to our society. And eventually, wrong ideas begin to crumble, right? But it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't come by just passivity. Hey, maybe every once in a while, maybe I'll share a little bit of thing, but if it, you know, if it doesn't go over well, I'll just come back. There's got to be this kind of relentlessness about confronting the delusions in this age. Well, I have a little bit more. I'm going to, I feel like it's good, so I'm just going to finish. I'm going to take, take a few more minutes because I think this is important. Part of the challenge in all of this is that some things we push back on are things like abortion, gender and sexuality issues, but anyone who challenges the morality of abortion or the ethics of letting children choose their gender or the practice of homosexuality is almost always immediately labeled a zealot in the right-wing political party. That's just, that's the truth. It's actually quite frustrating because I think most of us pledge allegiance above all to King Jesus and his kingdom and not a political party. Political parties rise and fall. They change. I mean, they change. They're corrupt. We don't trust in any imperfect political party. So try, listen, trying to persuade the public to agree with us on matters of morality, that's not our primary battle. That, that's, that's kind of not our fight. I think there's a time to voice our beliefs in the public arena on matters. Sure, we can be part of the conversation, but we are not primarily called to be preachers of social ethics. 
We are called not to contend for the legislation and morality in our nation, but to contend for the message of the gospel. If we're going to be martyred, then let it be for preaching the gospel and not because of our message on abortion or our definition of marriage. We are called to lift up Christ as the only true God, the only name under heaven that can save souls. We are called to proclaim eternal judgment that one day we will all stand before the great judge, Jesus. We are called to proclaim to people both the worst sinners and the most immoral people that all sinners, all are sinners and no one qualifies, right, for entrance into heaven. And above all, that our God has been crushed through crucifixion so that we could be pardoned. Like this is the, if we're going to be killed, whether physically or just socially, then let it be for the true gospel message. May we not be silent. And you know why? Because Satan is not silent. If he's going to talk, then we're going to talk. If he's going to raise up all kinds of spokesmen and people to, to go out there and, and through all kinds of different means to delude and deceive and blind people, then we're doing that too, right? Why would we sit back and let him just have his way in our generation? Especially young people, I think about. Yeah, Satan uses social media and movies and music and novels and magazines and a thousand other mediums. Satan's instruments are very vocal. So may we not shrug our shoulders indifferently when Satan displays his rebellion against the Savior. Again, we're called to be gentle and respectful, to honor everyone. We're called to love our enemies, right? The Bible says. However, nowhere in Scripture do you find that we are called to be silent about the message of the gospel. In fact, I would argue that to really love your enemies would be to challenge them and speak to them. So may we speak up at dinner tables and in classrooms and in workplaces. May we speak out in our writings and postings on social media. May we collectively push back in this generation and take back the hearts and minds of youth, especially, who have been utterly deceived by forces of darkness in spiritual realms. Again, this generation will not change merely by hiding out in a church building and praying a lot. think about Jonathan Edwards in the first Great Awakening in New England and his role in that movement. He wasn't just a, a Christian, a believer who just sat around in his little study and just prayed for people and then eventually God moved. He used every bit of his God-given intellect. And he was massive intellect to reason with people in the gospel. And he didn't speak loud. They say he even often spoke with kind of a monotone. But he did speak boldly as one that had authority. 
And he spoke of the exceeding sinfulness of sin and the necessity of holy living and the need for a savior and the certainty of eternal judgment. Here's what I'm saying. And I'll end with this. The majority, this haunts me. The majority of people around us are, are spiritually lost. That doesn't mean like, oh, they're just a little confused in life. They could use some help. I'm talking about they are in a condition, Ephesians 2, that they are without God, without hope. The wrath of God is on them. They are enemies of God. They are at enmity with God. It doesn't mean they're bad people. They might do good things. They might be sort of nice people. It doesn't matter. This is the condition of so many people around us. And listen, we can't just assume that they are going to figure out on their own the gospel message. That's our job to go into all the world and, like Paul said, to spread everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of God. I mean, do they know? Think about the people in your circle. Do they know that they will stand before God? Jesus, the judge on Judgment Day, Revelation 20. Do they know that their goodness is not good enough to qualify them for entrance into heaven? And that their sin is exceedingly sinful before a holy God and that they are guilty before a holy God, Romans 3. Do they know that Christ died for them in love and mercy? That his sacrificial death paid the price to make it possible for them to be pardoned? John 3. Do they know what they need to do to be saved? Repent, believe, Acts 2, right? Do they understand? Do they, do they know that they must be born again of the Spirit? in order to inherit the kingdom of God. Do, do they know that? Do, do they know that? Do your cousins know that? Do your aunts know that? Do your family members know that? Do your neighbors, do, do you, the people you work with, do your, just the, your circles, do people know these things? I mean, I was just having it out with God on the drive down, realizing that the overwhelming majority of people in this society that we live in, they are lost, and they also don't know the gospel. And it's kind of a shame on the churches because we have been cowardly and silent with this disturbing message. I mean, do they know how short life is? Do they know that hell awaits those who do not obey the gospel and do not know Christ? Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Or Jonathan Edwards would probably say, do they know that the only thing holding them back from sinking into hell as enemies of God this very day is the sheer mercy of God? And we've communicated these things to some people and they have rejected the truth, right? And that's tragic and that's heartbreaking. But you know what bothers me more 
just more than this is the fact that many people, we're not talking about villages in remote parts of the world. I'm talking about people right here in greater Providence. There are masses of people that have absolutely no idea what the gospel message really is. On my drive this morning, the Lord was just like giving me the quiz. Like if, if these questions were asked to the majority of people around you, they would fail the quiz. People do not understand what Christianity is. They don't get the gospel. They have no idea. They think it's like there's God is love because this is what we talk about. It's all we talk about. Oh, God is love. God is good. You know, God is kind. And you know, if you just try to be good, try to you know, try to try to join a church, say a sinner's prayer. You should be fine oh, as long as you you know have a little friendship with God. Just talk to God once in a while. You'll be fine. You're in. And this has been the foolish message that we have given out there. So this is kind of what people believe. And they think, well, yeah, I'm kind of a, I guess I'm, yeah, I'm okay with God. I mean, I don't really go to church that much, but I'm not a terrible person. I'm sure heaven awaits me. I mean, think about people in your circle. Do you think they, do they think they're in any danger at all? Do you even know one non-Christian that feels like, oh my goodness, am I right with God? Am I going to, if I die, am I going to be saved? Am I going to inherit the kingdom of God? I mean, really for my whole life, whatever, it's, uh, even after some Christians came to me and told me how wonderful God is, I, it still didn't affect me. It wasn't until, it was literally 21 years of my life that I thought, yeah, I don't know, I do drugs, I do my thing, I have my ideas of God, try to be a good person. I'm probably fine. I mean, you know, I don't know what's going to happen after we die, but it's probably going to be fine. Because I'm sure he's, you know, God is good and kind and everything. It's going to be fine. It wasn't until somebody actually told me the gospel message that now I couldn't sleep. Now I was affected. Now I was disturbed. Now I was realizing, no, the way that I am living is not right with God. And I am in a dangerous place. That's when I started to pay attention. That's when I started to break down. That's when just shortly after, um, broken before God and asking him to save my soul. But it was triggered by the true message of the gospel. So let's be bold, guys. Again, not cantankerous, not arguing when it's not fruitful, not lacking gentleness or respect not lacking honor. We're called to honor everyone. But let's not be silent in this generation. Amen? Amen. Lord, I pray that you would grant us boldness. Acts chapter 4. That we could speak the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel that we would not be ashamed publicly to identify with you and your message. Lord, if we have to be shamed, if we have to be reproached, if we have to be put out, if we have to be canceled, if we have to even, whatever, lose our jobs or be put out of families or friendships need to be broken because of it, Lord, let it be. This is what you have called us to in carrying our cross. Lord, grant us grace. 
to be strong in these things. And for the sake of reaching people who are lost, only the gospel can change them. Only the truth is going to bring them in. It's not just prayer. It's not just being nice to people. That, those things play a role. But it is speaking what the Holy Spirit is speaking about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment to come. Those are the things that crash down on the human heart and bring a person into the dust to be transformed by the grace of God. So may we be faithful as messengers of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for giving me some extra time this morning. I know this is an important message and hope you guys just steep in it, think about it, talk about it, pray it through. Don't just, uh, you know, run out of here and forget about it. Like just keep it, write about it maybe in your journal or whatever. But let's, let's, let's make sure we do this one. This isn't like, oh, that was so great. You know, let's get on to the next. No, let's make sure we put this one into practice. Amen. 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 Love you guys.